I have writer's block all the time, you know, and that, but I write anyway. And I don't, you know, I don't mind like, oh, this is crap. I don't care. I can make it better because I rewrite and then I make it better. So it's, it's two different ways of working. Writing, uh, if we, when you, I'm writing, it's as if I'm sitting in a, in a garden, like a jungle where everything grows. And when I'm rewriting, I'm riding, riding on a horse through a field, brandishing a beautiful sword, the sword of discrimination, not racial discrimination. Discernment, I suppose you call it. I'm brandishing the sword and there's music like Wagner playing. And I'm cutting everything that doesn't belong, you know. So there's writing and there's rewriting. Don't do both at the same time. That's Susan Laurie Parks. She's written some of the most compelling plays in contemporary American theater. Top Dog, Underdog, Father Comes Home from the Wars, White Noise. The same is true of Lynn Nottage. She's also written some of the most compelling plays in contemporary American theater. Intimate Apparel, Ruined, Sweat, and many more. When we dove into the Academy of Achievement's Audio Vault this week, we decided to pair these two extraordinary playwrights who have much in common. Both were born in the mid-1960s, a year apart. Both are women. Both are African-American. Both won a MacArthur Fellowship, otherwise known as a Genius Grant, and both are Pulitzer Prize winners. Susan Laurie Parks was actually the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer for drama. Lynn Nottage was the second, and you might say also the third, since she's won the Pulitzer twice. So then, on to a double dose of stagecraft on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. The plays of Lynn Nottage, grounded in historical research, are nothing like the plays of Susan Laurie Parks, which pour more experimentally from her imagination. But both writers tackle uncomfortable issues of race and class in their work, and both have changed the face of theater in America. And here's one more thing Lynn Nottage and Susan Laurie Parks have in common. Both of them entered college as science majors, only to find themselves pulled irresistibly back to literature. Susan Laurie Parks remembers the turning point for her. We had to take an English class. And I remember we read, uh, among the books we read, uh, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, which I still don't really, like, get, you know? I mean, right? But, but I got it, like, in a, this way. I was like, oh, Oh, this is beautiful. It was beautiful. A woman in the lighthouse, and will we go to the lighthouse? Will we not go? Will the weather be good? Whatever. I don't know what they're talking about, but it was gorgeous. And I remember when I read that book, I said, oh, yeah, I remember who I am. It reminded me. It re- helped me remember, literally, put my members back on each other. You know, put my hand like, this is someone who had given me my hands back, or my eyes back, or my ears back, or my heart back. You remember yourself, and you go, I remember who I am. I am the kid who loves myths, and who loves to mix up songs about things, and who loves to, you know, uh, who loves writing. So... There I was. I danced out of there, and I've been dancing out ever since. For Lynn Nottage, the moment that determined her future was a little more prosaic, but fateful in its own way. For my first two years at Brown, I took science courses and math courses and just completely immersed myself in in pre-med. But 
at night, I'd go home and I'd write plays and produce plays and um, th thought that I, my, I was going to be a doctor whose hobby it was to write plays. But then I took organic chemistry and um, I did not get through it. <laughs> which very quickly ended my pre-med career. And I, I, yeah, I just realized that I was never going to be a doctor. And I then threw myself completely into theater and into um, African-American studies and English. Once I committed to um, pursuing creative writing and theater, I began to meet professors who profoundly um, changed the way in which I saw myself as a writer. and, and the, um, changed um, my trajectory. And one of those professors was George Bass, who taught me um, the ritual of making theater, that it's not just about writing a play, but it's actually a ritual of inviting people into um, a world that you've created. And then I also met Paula Vogel, who was the very first um, f female playwright that I'd ever encountered. It's not that I hadn't read um, plays written by uh, women, but I realized up until that point I'd never met a woman who had written a play. And she really gave me that extra little push and nurturing that I needed to um, build my self-confidence and, and pursue playwriting as a career. For both women, indications of success came quickly. Susan Laurie Parks was invited in college to join an exclusive workshop with James Baldwin, where she didn't behave quite like the other students in the room. I'm a ham. I'm such a ham. I mean, I can't help it. I mean, <laughs> I'm a ham. Um, so when we sat at this beautiful table, this long table, and all 15 of us, 15 folks around the table, and he was at the head of the table, and the other writers, they would read their work, and they would read it as I suppose one should read a short story, you know, you know, beautifully voiced, like that great, really, you know, but I would like, and sometimes I'd get up and, and, you know, I did this week after week, you know, every time it was my turn, I would sort of become a little more animated. I felt that that's how it had to be read. It had to be like lived, kind of. And after a couple of weeks, he said, um, he said, Miss Parks, have you ever thought about writing for the theater. And I thought he was telling me, you know, you're no good, out of here, you know, go to the theater, like get thee to a nunnery. I didn't know what, he, I was devastated. But then as I rode home on the, the bus, I thought, well, maybe I'll start writing for the theater. I have no, knew nothing about theater, nothing. I mean, I knew what, a, you know, I'd seen a play or two, but hadn't taken a theater class at Mount Holyoke, anything like that. So I started writing for the theater. I'm still writing for the series today. Lynn Nottage's success began even earlier. She'd written a play in high school about an African-American Shakespeare theater company traveling through the South. It was called The Darker Side of Verona. Well, that play got her invited to the Young Playwrights Festival and then, like Susan Laurie Parks, to an exclusive workshop. But this one led by Stephen Sondheim. And so I spent a year just completely immersed in, in, in theater. Um, and it was, it was this very sort of rare, beautiful experiences. For, th th there were two women, two African-American women, which seems really unusual um, at the time, and, and two, two men. And we'd spend our afternoons in um, the Schubert office, which is this beautiful old office with a piano, sort of sitting around a, a, a piano, um, banging out uh, tunes and learning how to, to compose um, musicals. And we also had the opportunity to go and see just about every musical that was on Broadway at the time. And as a, as a, a, a kid, well, you know that the tickets are prohibitively expensive. And so Broadway was something that was never um, accessible to me. So the Young Playwrights Festival really became this window into a world that I didn't know was, uh, it was possible for me to enter. Was Sondheim an influence? Absolutely, Sondheim was an influence because he was, in many ways, this door into the world of theater. You know, and he is a, a phenomenal composer. Um, he's also a phenomenal mentor. What did you learn from him? 
the show that we were watching um, him develop when we were young was Merrily We Roll Along. And at the time, it didn't go quite as well as he had hoped. And I think, I, I think that what I learned is that even the greatest artists can stumble. And even the greatest of artists um, have, have major setbacks that they have to overcome. And to watch him go through that was really a great life lesson. The interviewer's voice you just heard belongs to Gail Eichenthal. She interviewed Lynn Nottage at the 2019 Academy of Achievement International Summit. Gail did the interview with Susan Laurie Parks as well at the 2007 summit. But in addition to the interview that year, Susan Laurie Parks gave a talk, or I should say, performed a talk for the student delegates. It was kinetic and inspiring. So to change things up a bit from here on, we're going to take a deep dive into Lynn Nottage's story and the fascinating approach she takes to playwriting. And then we'll take you to Susan Laurie Park's talk, almost in its entirety, to get you on your feet and maybe even primed to try writing a play of your own. Lynn Nottage was born during the height of the Civil Rights Movement and grew up in a diverse Brooklyn neighborhood. When she was five or six, she spent her weekends learning about African and African-American history and culture in a school her mother and some friends created that they called Black School. Those friends of her mom happened to be Betty Shabazz, the wife of Malcolm X, and Eugenia Clark, wife of the pioneering historian John Henrik Clark. So Lynn Nottage was steeped in black consciousness. I remember also um, my mother used to meticulously at night fill in all of my picture books um, with a brown magic marker because she wanted me, when I read those books, to see a reflection of myself. And I still, you know, um, think about the time that it took for her to go through every picture book that I had and um, color in the faces brown. And I think that that's um, a result of growing up in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement. When she was a teenager, Nottage spent every day commuting from Brooklyn to the very different world of Harlem, where she went to the High School of Music and Art. She played flute and piano there, and it's also where she wrote her first play, The Darker Side of Verona, for an English class. I don't even know where it came from other than I felt compelled to sit down one day and write a complete play. I was someone who grew up going to the theater. It was really important. Um, it was my, my parents really impressed upon us that it was important to, to engage with the arts. And what the arts that my parents really pushed me uh, toward was, was theater. They loved theater. I grew up going to the Negro Ensemble, going to the New Federal Theater, going to the Billie Holiday Theater. And so I think that when I finally was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in high school, I gravitated toward writing. And plays. Getting selected for the workshop with Stephen Sondheim that I mentioned earlier was certainly a hint at things to come. But then there was that short detour into science when Brown University offered her a pre-med scholarship. Once she got her priorities in order, it was off to grad school at the Yale School of Drama. Over the next 14 years, she had some day jobs while she wrote a string of plays that were staged professionally. One of the first was presented at the prestigious Humana Festival with a cast that included Rosie Perez and Viola Davis. Then in 2003, she broke through with what's still one of her best-known plays, Intimate Apparel. It was commissioned by Baltimore's center stage and soon moved to Off-Broadway, where it starred again Viola Davis and drew a lot of praise from critics. Intimate Apparel was a breakthrough play for me. And I wrote the play um, just after my mother died and my grandmother had developed um, senile dementia. And w when I began the play, um, it's a, which is a play about a seamstress in 1904 who comes to New York and finds herself very isolated and begins looking for love in all of the wrong places. She writes to a man in Panama who um, returns the letters and he writes in this very sort of floral 
um, beautiful way and she becomes seduced by that voice. I see you sitting at your sewing machine. I hear the sound of the wheel turning, the tiny stitches drawing together the pieces of satin. I open the letter and these tiny bits of fabric tumbled out onto the ground. Imagine my surprise. Gray wool, pink silk, and the blue flannel, which I tucked into the back of my shirt this morning. And when he arrives in New York, she discovers that he's not that man. Um, but the parallel story is that she's also in love with a fabric salesman who happens to be an Orthodox Jew, but they can never consummate that relationship. And the play, um, for me, really came about um, wanting to understand my ancestors because my mother had died and my grandmother had senile dementia and I realized I didn't know who they were. And there was no one left in my family to ask questions um, about who they were. And I realized that for a really long period of time that the women in my family had been reticent about their past. And I wanted to understand the nature of that reticence. And so I began investigating a woman who would have been like my great-grandmother, a seamstress at the turn of the century. I began plunging into periodicals from the time. And I spent about a year and a half at the New York Public Library just trying to resurrect the life of my great-grandmother. Intimate Apparel was the first place she wrote that relied so heavily on research, but it's become a central part of her creative process ever since, and has expanded the way she approaches writing plays, she told Gail Eichenthal. And one of the, the ways in, in Intimate Apparel, which is something I do to this day, is I decided that I was going to pick um, the week that the play began, and I was going to, to research as deeply as I could that week in history, and that week became the foundation for the play. And so every play that I've written since then, I always pick one week that the play begins. What does that do for you to start at a given week? Um, well, what I, I found is beginning my play at one given way, week helped center me. It helped give me a focus, is I could turn to the periodicals and determine what the weather was like and what was happening on the stock market and what was you know, happening on, on a local level. And that really informed how those characters were living and breathing. Think about, was it a smoggy day when my play began? And it just forced me to think much more deeply about the world in which the characters were immersed. Brings realism. Yeah. So fabulation was sort of a companion piece? Um, Fabulation was a companion piece. I tend to write two plays at the same time. And now one play, which I describe as a trage tragedy, and the other play, which is a comedy, it's like the yin and yang of <laughs> the yin and yang of of Lynn Nottage. Um, a play like Ruined, which took me into the um, into the forest of the Democratic Republic of Congo with women who were victims of rape, I found that I needed some place to escape periodically, and so I had to write another play, which at that time was, by the way, Meet Vera Stark, and that became my refuge. When I was writing Intimate Apparel, which was a play that I had written for my mother, which really required for me to go someplace very deep and emotional, periodically I needed to escape, and that escape was fabulation. And fabulation um, was imagining the character in Intimate Apparel a hundred years later if she had had the benefit of the, the civil rights movement and the feminist movement. Who would Esther, this lonely seamstress, be a hundred years later? And so that's fabulation. When Lynn Nottage began writing Ruined, the first of her plays to win a Pulitzer, she upped the research stage to a whole new level. She and her frequent collaborator, director Kate Wariski, had envisioned doing an adaptation of Mother Courage and Her Children, one of the greatest anti-war plays of all time, written by Bertolt Brecht in 1939. It's set in 17th century Europe during the Thirty Years' War, but was really Brecht's protest against the rise of fascism and Nazism. To bring Mother Courage into the present, Lynn Nottage and Kate Wariski began looking into the various armed conflicts going on at the time, and they found themselves particularly fascinated and disturbed 
by the war in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the two of us decided that we were going to set the play there. And when I began reading the newspapers, I found I couldn't find any information about what was happening to women in war. And I said to, to Kate on a whim, I said, what if we bought a ticket and we went to East Africa and interviewed women who were fleeing that war. And she, she, was, a, she was a little frightened, a little worried, and, but she, she followed me there. And you have to remember, at this moment, we were still very interested in doing a modern adaptation of, of Mother Courage. Um, but when we sat down with um, w women who were fleeing the war, very quickly I realized that that um, European male frame of the story was not going to be sufficient. That the stories that we were hearing from these women were so specific to um, the Democratic Republic of, of Congo, was so specific to African women that I thought, I need a completely different paradigm in order to enter this space. And one of the things that really resonated when I was interviewing the women is um, the way in which they heard, held the word mother in their mouths. I always asked each woman, how would you describe um, mother courage? And they'd always take a moment where they'd stop and they'd say, yes, mother courage. And in that moment, I thought, I have to somehow capture that emotion and capture um, sort of the sadness, but the resilience that was um, inside the way in which they held that language in their mouths. And so Ruin really came out of that. There's almost a built-in paradox uh, where a brothel is a kind of safe haven, or at least a haven. Well, I, I'm very interested uh, as a whole in morally ambiguous um, characters. And at the center of Ruined is a, a woman named Mama Nadi who runs a brothel in the Atari rainforest. And she at once um, provides refuge um, to women who have been victims of gender-specific human rights abuses, but she also exploits them. And so I was really interested in that conundrum of someone who is at once um, sort of um, savior and exploiter. You know, one of the, the, the phrases that I held on to when I was interviewing these women was um, sustain the complexity of the situation. It's really easy for us to um, condemn someone like Mamanati without understanding the difficulty of surviving in a war like the one that was raging in the entire rainforest. It's really easy for us to, um, to be judgmental without understanding the complexities of, of, of what it took to survive in that situation. Do you know what kind of place this is? Yes, Mama, I think so. And we have no problems. I expect my girls to be well behaved and clean. That's all. I provide a bed, food, and clothing. If things are good, everyone gets a little. If things are bad, then mama eats first. Am I making myself clear? Good. Red is your color. Thank you, mama. Thank you, mama. One of the things that is often said about Ruined is that you riveted audiences around the country with a story that the newspapers weren't even really covering. Yeah. How can um, so many women be experiencing similar levels of, of exploitation and gender-specific violence and none of us know that it's happening? If you remember the war in Democratic um, Republic of Congo, I think it, it, by the time it ended, 6.5 million people had died. It was the largest war since World War II, and half of those people who were victims were women who never picked up the arms and weren't the instigators of the conflict, and yet were victims. Untold victims of rape. Yeah, I, and I, I think back specifically to some of the stories that I heard, and I remember um, in, in fact, the very first um, woman who we interviewed began telling her story, and um, I was so overwhelmed by emotion, I literally felt like my heart was going to leap out of my body, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to continue, but I realized that if I didn't continue, 
and if I didn't bear witness, there was a possibility that there wasn't going to be someone else um, who would listen and someone else who would take the time to really invest in, in their stories not only being heard, but their stories being told. And I remember sitting down w with the women and I always began by saying, it's like, I'm not a human rights activist, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a, a journalist, but what I can do that many of them won't do is that I can listen to your story from beginning to end and I'll do it with patience and I'll do it with compassion. You know, you mentioned Mother Courage and watching the play which is a shattering experience, I can't help thinking of the courage of you taking it to that point, which you knew was going to create a lot of emotion in your audience. It, it, um, it was really important when I was writing Ruin that the audience take a journey, um, not just through the darkness, but come out at the end with a sense of optimism and um, um, recognize the resilience in these w women. I know that I took a lot of criticism when the play was originally produced that I had a happy ending. Uh, but one of the things that I remember when I was interviewing the women is how easily they could move from despair to um, accessing their smiles. And I thought those smiles are the things that permit them to transcend these circumstances. And I wanted the audiences to understand that uh, as dark as the place these women were, they were able to find their resilience. The second of your plays to win a Pulitzer is Sweat, and that also involved research. For, for me, Sweat really came at the end of my journey with Ruined. Um, it began when I was actually coming back from Chad, where I had just done a production of Ruin there, and I arrived, um, I arrived home, and I had all of these emails in my email mailbox, and one um, very specific email was from a neighbor of mine um, who was a very good friend. I opened it up that evening, and I read it, and basically she was saying that she had been broke for six months, that she hadn't been working, that she had been hiding it from her friends, and that when we saw her smiling, that smile was covering the fact that she was in deep despair. Um, she was a mother of two. Um, she's someone who I can attest to, she always had a smile, and it broke my heart. It broke my heart that I had not recognized the extent of her suffering. I hadn't recognized that she was someone um, that was in the, in, in, in the midst of such a struggle. And the next day I called her up and I said, well, what can I do to help? And it also happened to coincide with the very first um, week of Occupy Wall Street. And so we decided that we were gonna go to walk, Occupy Wall Street and vent our frustration. Um, and we spent about a week walking around Ducati Park, chanting, being really angry. Um, but at the very end, I felt like nothing has happened. And I felt I need to do something much more tangible. And I want to understand how economic stagnation is really shifting the American narrative and how someone like this friend who had solidly invested in the Horatio Alger uh, myth, someone who had been solidly middle class, could um, be broadsided and find herself on the verge of being homeless. And that led me on um, a journey to Reading, Pennsylvania, which at the time was the poorest city of its size in America. My assumption is that I was going to go down to the city, interview people for um, one week, and it ended up being a two-year journey in which I went almost every single week to talk to people and interview people from you know, the, the first African-American mayor of this, this city to folks who were living in shanty towns in the village. And when I arrived in Reading, I had no um, assumption of what I was going to hear. I had no expectation that I was ever going to leave with a play. Um, it also happened to coincide with um, a commission that I had received from Oregon Shakespeare Festival to write a play about the American Revolution. And while I was in Reading, I decided I want to write about the deindustrial revolution because I think that this is perhaps the biggest revolution that has happened in America since the Civil Rights Movement. I just want to repeat that phrase so it sinks in, the deindustrial revolution. Lynn Nottage's play, Sweat, that grew out of all her interviews in Reading, tracks over the course of a year a close-knit group of friends who work in a steel factory. 
as they celebrate their prosperity, as they discover they're going to be locked out of their plant, and as their friendships fracture along the way across racial lines. It premiered in 2015 at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and made its way to New York's public theater and then to Broadway in 2017. I remember thinking, that's my friend. She's tough as hell. Don't mess with her. She'll fight for what she loves, even if it means getting scrappy and looking ugly. That's my friend. And I miss the Cynthia that understood that. What do you want from me, Tracy? Walk out with us! I can't. Walk with us, come on! I stood on that line. Same line since I was 19. I've taken orders from idiots who were dangerous or even worse, racist. But I stood on the line, patiently waiting for a break. I don't think you get it. But if I walk away, I'm giving up more than a job. I'm giving up all the time I spent standing on line waiting for one damn opportunity. You want us to feel sorry I didn't expect you to understand, babe. You don't know what it's like to walk in my shoes. I've absorbed a lot of over the years, but I've worked hard to get off that floor. You can call me selfish, I don't care. Call me whatever you need to call me, but remember, one of us has to be left standing to fight. The landing of sweat was was quite fascinating because when we first began the play, it's set in 2008. The assumption is I was writing a play about history. Um, and in the course of producing the play, um, America shifted. Uh, I remember we, we actually, on uh, the night that Donald Trump was elected, we were performing and there was a tangible difference in the way in which the audience responded to the play um, from the night before. Something had shifted that this play that was history suddenly became reality and became um, prescient and spoke to what was happening in America in ways that the media hadn't seen it and many Americans hadn't seen it. And one of the questions I was asked is like, did you know that Donald Trump was going to get elected because your play seems as though it was written in response to Donald Trump. It's like, I didn't know that he was going to get elected, but having spent two and a half years in uh, a deindustrial town, I knew that there was going to be some form of revolution. I didn't know that that revolution would be Donald Trump, but I knew that people wanted something very different. The alienation uh, among steel workers and others in the Rust Belt is hard for people on the coast to even fathom, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it was really, it was heartbreaking for me um, to, I, I, um, to sit in circles with steel workers who had worked in factories, f in some cases for 40 years, the same fa factory. They had assumed that they would retire and have these enormous pension plans and that their sons and daughters would then move into these jobs, realizing that not only would they never be able to access their pension plans and access their factories again, but that that opportunity was gone for the next generation. And I remember sitting in this circle of middle-aged white men, you know, this, <laughs> this um, black woman, and um, asking them questions and seeing them not just cry, but weep. Um, weep out of frustration, also weeping because they literally didn't know what to do next. And that was surprising, is because for so long, and, 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 and forgive me for using this language, but for so long I think that these particular men saw their opportunity, their whiteness as a superpower. And that as long as they were white men, they'd always have opportunity. And I think when that opportunity was taken away from them, they became profoundly confused. It's like, wait a minute, what do we do? Who are we? And I watched when um, I was sitting in the circle as these men were grappling with a sense of identity, their, of their identity, like, who are we if not this? And I found that fascinating. And the fact that not only have they lost their identity as workers, but they can't support their families? They can't support their families. You know, they can't pay their mortgages. Um, when I was talking to one um, of the locked out steel workers, he was describing not being able to do the things that he had taken for granted, like going to see a movie. He thought, I may never be able to go to a movie theater again. 
because I don't have that disposable income. And just the notion of that was quite devastating. What was it like to win the second Pulitzer Prize? Um, winning the, the second Pulitzer Prize was a complete and utter shock because you don't expect lightning to strike twice. Um, but um, it also um, led me to believe that perhaps this is not a fluke. I heard someone earlier today, I guess Peter Gabriel was talking about you know, imposter syndrome. And you always think, oh, the first one was just a fluke. Surely they didn't read the play. Um, and the second time I thought, oh, perhaps they are recognizing that um, the, the kind of research and work um, that I'm doing to bring these characters to, st to stage has some real value. Lynn Nottage wasn't satisfied, actually, to just bring the characters to the stage. She decided the stage had to be brought to the characters, or rather the real people who'd inspired her characters, people who would never normally have the opportunity or the money to walk into a theater. So with the public theater's help, she took the play on the road where it was performed in gymnasiums, union halls, churches, and food pantries. When we were initially conceiving of um, Sweat, myself and my collaborator, Kate Worski, we always wanted to figure out a way not only to bring the play back to the people in Reading, Pennsylvania, but to take it to folks who might be very much in dialogue with the issues that were happening on the stage. And so we, we along with Oregon Shakespeare Festival, raised some, some money from the very inception to take the play outside of the proscenium and take it into communities. And so after we took it to Reading, we wanted to figure out a way to keep what we experienced with that audience in Reading, Pennsylvania alive. And we came up with this notion of, of touring um, sweat through the Rust Belt, specifically in small towns that were swing towns that had vo voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. We wanted to go to places where we thought we could have a dialogue. We didn't want to go just red or blue. We wanted to go to, the, to purple, those places where we thought after the play is done, we can actually talk about some of these issues. How did that go? Um, it was the, the, tour, the, the tour of the Rust Belt with Sweat was pheno phenomenal. It really exceeded our expectations. Um, and I think in large part due to a lot of the excellent work that the um, public did to prepare people for what they um, were going to see. And, and you talk about the way in which you invite audiences across threshold is that the public theater's advance team spent a lot of time figuring out how do we get people who've never seen theater to enter into a space and sit for two and a half hours and watch a play. Um, and when I got there, my ante I anticipated that uh, you know, there'd be a lot of cell phones ringing, that people would be restless. But by and large, those audiences sat quiet and wrapped, and at the end of the play, really wanted to engage in robust conversation. You know, I describe it like uh, almost like a, a traveling tent show, in which the play is the sermon, and the people afterwards would stand up and testify. Uh, it, it, sometimes we had to to turn out the lights to get people to stop talking. But what we recognized that there was a real need to talk about what. Um, folks in the Rust Belt were going through. Here's a little excerpt of the post-show dialogue, which Lynn Nottage has posted on her website. Tonight made me know how angry I was when I was out of work. And it's bad when you're mad and angry and don't know who to take it out on. You don't never know what you had till it get taken from you. What would you uh, tell budding writer, playwright, uh, what it is that is so invigorating for you, this form? I think the reason that I gravitate toward theater is because it's, it's communal, it's collaborative, that it's dynamic, it's sort of, sh um, it's really dependent on the conversation between the artists and, and the audience, and I can't think of any other medium that invites the audience to be a collaborator. I can't think of any other um, medium that has the immediacy and the robustness of, of drama. I love that every time I go and see the play, it's different. 
and that I can't anticipate what it's going to be um, based on the alchemy of, of the, the bodies that are in, in the audience. It's really a joy to talk Thank to you. Thank you. Lynn Nottage has written several plays and a musical since Sweat. Now she's about to premiere an opera that she and composer Ricky Ian Gordon adapted from her earlier play, Intimate Apparel. Previews begin at Lincoln Center in New York in just a couple of weeks as I record this episode, and it's directed by the great Bartlett Shear. If you haven't heard our episode on him, I suggest you cue it up next. But before you touch that podcast app, I promised you we'd return to Lynn Nottage's fellow playwright and friend, Susan Laurie Parks, to end our episode with the speech she gave to graduate students at an Academy of Achievement Summit about her own path to writing plays. Both these women are masters at bringing the stories of marginalized people to the stage. But Susan Laurie Parks, as you're about to hear, has a different spirit and approach to writing plays. The New York Times critic reviewing her 2019 play, White Noise, said, Every time Miss Parks writes a play, she seems to come up with a brand new genre. Between these two extraordinary Pulitzer Prize-winning playwrights, we think you'll find more than enough inspiration to go around. Here, then, is Susan Laurie Parks to take us out. This is great. This is really great. I've got a million suggestions for you today. Um, I'll see how many I can get through in the eight minutes that they've given me to speak with you. And I've got three uh, anecdotes. Um, People ask me, what is it? like to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama, and it's great. So, so don't ask me that question during the Q&A. It's great. Of course it's great. It's also very humbling, as you all know, because, because it's like, you know, it's great, and then it's like, whoa, because you know, as you know, we, we all, those of us who excel, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and we all know that none of us are here by our own, you know, simply by our own doing. Um, First anecdote, anecdote number one, I started writing when I was in the fourth grade, when I was little but not small, and um, my dad had just come back from the Vietnam War, fighting in the Vietnam War, he was a career army officer, and he and my mom decided that they would buy a grand piano because it was their idea to have all their kids, all their kids, their three children, all of us, um, play the piano. You know, that was their sort of thing that they wanted. And um, poor, uh, unfortunately for my mom and dad, I spent more, less time at the piano doing the scales and more time underneath the piano because it's a perfect cave, really. And so the dog would come. We had a dog named Penny, and she would come and hang out with me, and we'd sit in the cave that was the grand piano, underneath the grand piano. And my mother, and all women back then, I know like some of you are very young and weren't born back then, in those days, but all women back then, this is a rule, um, they wore high heels. And so my mother, she walked by looking for me. She didn't hear the da-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, right? So she didn't know where I was. And she would look for me, and she would lean down, and she'd click, 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 click by on her high heels, and she'd say, what are you doing underneath the piano? And I was there. I said, I'm writing my novel. I was writing my novel. I had read, in the fourth grade, I had read a total of uh, three novels. Read at two novels, no, read one, uh, read two novels and read at one novel. All of them had pictures in them. One was Harriet the Spy, you know, great novel. With pictures, really good pictures. Uh, The second one was Hotel for Dogs, lesser known, a lesser known masterpiece. But it was brilliant. It was about some kids who like made a hotel for dogs. It was amazing. And the third, the one I read at, you know, didn't read but read at, was the um, the illustrated uh, Don Quixote. I read, you know, I read the captions. So I'm flipping through, reading all the captions under these drawings. So I had read um, a sum total of three novels, and I felt like after reading three novels, it was time for me to write my own. Uh, suggestion number one is. Entertain all your far-out ideas. All your far-out ideas. I know, I stand on one foot a lot. Don't worry. I was a flamingo, I think, <laughs> last time. 
but I do that a lot. And people go, why do you do that? I, I don't know. But uh, int I entertain all my far out ideas. Duh. Um, all your far out ideas. People ask me, how do you come up with the crazy ideas for the things you write and the things you do? And all that? I entertain all my far out ideas. And what that means is an idea walks into the room and you entertain your idea. You all know how to entertain. You, you know, right, you're, you're not, no, yo, man, if you go, hey, he's gonna have a party tonight, right? So, <laughs> you spread the table, right? You offer your best food that you have. Doesn't need to be fancy, but it does need to be, you know, appropriate. You might get, put out some wine or water, depending on whether or not your idea is a drinker. Um, you know, light some candles, put on some music, that kind of thing. You entertain all your far out ideas. What it does not mean is when your idea comes in the room, you go, oh, I don't know, I don't think I'm going to have you in here, right? You entertain all your far out ideas. That's suggestion number one. Suggestion number two, when you get an award, regardless of what the award is for, know that you've been called upon to increase the amount of kindness and compassion in the world. That's like the fine print. I saw the pictures on the website. We get golden plates or something, right? The fine print, I think, in the fine print of the golden plate is, you have once again been called to increase kindness and compassion in the world. That's the fine print. And all of you have been uh, given awards and prizes, and you will continue to get awards and prizes. You'll have so many in the next like five years. Like It'll be amazing. Note the fine print. Always remind yourself. A lot of artists, especially artists, you know, they start winning awards. They start getting some. And they really start, think that's uh, an opportunity for them to treat you like, you know, I got mine, I'm in and you're not, kind of thing. Always remember that your real job, your real job is to increase the kindness and compassion in the world. I know, I've written plays, movies for movie stars, you know, I've had plays on Broadway and whatnot. I, my real job is to, is to uh, you know, increase the peace, increase the kindness and compassion in the world. Just because I'm standing here now on this, I love it, the carpet is red. This is very good. So just because I'm standing here on the red carpet, uh, it doesn't mean that it's been easy. Of course not. Um, anecdote number two, I was in high school. This is a long time ago. Some, I'm older than, you know. So it was way back in the olden days. And I was a very poor speller. And I had a, a wonderful teacher uh, an English teacher, a literature teacher, who suggested when I told her, I want to be a writer, she suggested that because I was a very poor speller that I should not be a writer. And that's anecdote number two, which leads to suggestion number three, which is question authority. <laughs> Especially when we're here, we're in stone's throw, or spitting distance, as the saying goes, from the White House. Question authority, question authority, question authority. Um, Oh, that's a lot of suggestions just ran by. We, we didn't have time to, to say them. <laughs> suggestion number 80. Suggestion number 80, uh, don't worry about being cool. Being cool is overrated. And besides, you'll miss all the fun. <laughs> suggestion number 718 and 12. 7,812, sorry, I can't even read it. Practice radical inclusion. Practice radical inclusion. Not just inclusion, but radical inclusion. What is radical inclusion? Inclusion is this, right? It's comfortable, right? It doesn't you know, create any strain in your shoulders. Radical inclusion is this. Now, you're not ripping your arms off. You can see it from the side. You have to see it from the side, right? It's a little outside of your comfort zone. That's one of the reasons why the Academy of Achievement is so cool. It gives me personally an opportunity to practice radical inclusion with the diversity of the Golden Plate recipients. We realize that actually it's not just including people who are like us, that's inclusion, but including people who perhaps are not like us or are less like us than we'd like them to be. <laughs> I'm not naming any names. I'm not naming any names. I'm just saying. Um, more suggestions. Uh, each one, teach one. Lift others as you climb. Eyes on the prize. Ain't nobody gonna turn me around. <laughs> Thousands just ran by. Um, I've had plays on Broadway, and I've had plays off Broadway, and I've had plays off, 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 off Broadway. So far away from Broadway that, well, gee, they didn't even know what Broadway was. Anecdote number three, my very first big break came 
in New York City when I decided to create my own luck, as my father says, you gotta make your luck. And as a playwright, for me, that meant producing my own play. So for the cost of, you know, a Starbucks mocha chocolate latte, latte, you know, not, not much money at all, I hired some actors, I hired a director, and I knew these guys in the East Village who ran a bar, and I said to them one night, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and I said, yo, guys, you know, you want to do a play in here? Like that. And they said yes. <laughs> See what happens if you just hang out in the bar long enough. Um, <laughs> the only piece of furniture in the bar was this green couch on which had happened many things. <laughs> And so the guys were like, uh, well, you're going to put on a play, so we'll buy chairs. It was great. They'll buy chairs. And I said, well, I'll put up posters. You know, it was like an old time, you know, let's put on a show kind of thing. Um, so we had all the elements. We had, we had chairs. We had little posters around the neighborhood kind of thing. We had actors. We had directors. Uh, we went into rehearsal. It was fantastic. Oh, I went out to the hardware store because, yeah, one couch. And all they had, the lights were just Christmas lights. So we needed lighting, you know, theatrical lighting. So I went to the hardware store and I purchased some of those clip-on lights, you know, that you can clip like that. You know, you know, you guys used to be like poor, 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 poor students. So that's what we used. Right? Two extension cords snaking around the theater, and I sat behind a screen, and my job was to operate the lights, and so for lights up, you know, I plugged them together. Yeah, so I was doing this all night. If you've ever tried to do that in the, in the dark with an extension cord, you'll know what theater is all about. And that was my very first break. Uh, four people came. Oh, we ran for three days. That was, the, you know, which was the standard run off, 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 Broadway. Four people came. My mom, my dad, my sister, and the homeless gentleman who lived outside. And I felt I was the happiest playwright in the entire universe because I felt that I'd arrived. You couldn't have told me that it wasn't, you know, a, an incredible experience because I had a play on in New York City and people uh, were coming and I felt like it was the best show ever. Uh, so suggestion number one million, here we are already, uh, enjoy the trip. That's Susan Laurie Park speaking at the Academy of Achievements International Summit in 2007 in Washington, D.C. The interview with Lynn Nottage was recorded at the 2019 summit in New York City. And to end, as I began by noting what they have in common, Ms. Parks teaches playwriting at NYU, while Ms. Nottage teaches playwriting at Columbia University. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is generously funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening. Thank you.